Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. On today's episode, we welcome back Mark Sandcrant from Blue Ash Capital. Mark has a wealth of knowledge in the M&A space, both as an advisor helping companies sell and also as an acquirer um, buying other businesses. Today, we talk about the topic of roll-ups and we talk about what that is and how to do it. Now, it was a really great episode, but it went quite long. We're both deal nerds, so we had a lot to say and talk about on this one. So I'll actually split it up into two parts. As this audio will be on the first part of the episode, if you want to reach out to Mark directly, look him up on LinkedIn. His name is Mark Sandcrant. I'll put that, all those details in the show notes as well. And or you can email him directly, mark at blueashcapital.com. I hope you enjoy this episode and please give us your feedback on any more of these topics you'd like us to go deeper on in future episodes. But anyway, enjoy the episode with Mark Sandcrant. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, we've invited back our good friend, Mark Sankrant, to join us. And today, we're talking about a very exciting topic, which I'll get to in two seconds. Mark, thanks for jumping back on the line. Hey, happy to be here, Corin. Awesome. Looking forward to chatting some more with you about uh, M&A. Absolutely. Okay, so if you heard the previous episode that Mark was on, I kept referencing this episode, which it's actually taken a little bit of time to get back together with scheduling conflicts, but we're here now, which is great. And the topic we'll be talking about today is roll-ups. Now, whether you're looking at selling your business, whether you're looking at doing a roll-up, or you've just heard this magical term and you want to know more about what that is, this episode today is 100% for you. So, Mark, could you just give us a brief overview of your personal experience with roll-ups, and then we'll go into a definition of a roll-up? Yeah, happy be happy to, and I'll, I'll do my best to keep it brief, but I'm going to forewarn you that might be a little bit of a challenge. Um, so my personal experience with rollups has been twofold, both as a, an advisor. So, you know, back in my investment banking days in the early, I'm sorry, mid to late nineties, working with businesses that were undergoing rollup strategies. And ultimately uh, back then the strategy was to go public. Things have changed a little bit since then. And then more recently in my career, I've been involved in essentially a roll-up, but the phrase that we used, and we can get into this in a little bit, is was more of a buy and build strategy. And there's certainly some nuance to the terms here of roll-up and buy and build strategy. But basically, I've been on the structuring side from you know more of an advisory role, and I've also been on the operational side where... I was responsible for identifying the acquisitions, um, structuring the deal, financing the deals, and then most importantly, integrating the deals. So I've, I've seen seen the process unfold from both sides of the spectrum. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to dig into that and get some more of your insights. But um, let's start at the very beginning, and I'll play novice in this conversation to give some perspective for the audience. So a lot of the sellers or business owners looking to sell their business or thinking about selling their business in the near future, it's a common topic to maybe even have someone reach out to them and say, look, I'm doing a roll-up, our company's raised X amount of capital, and it all sounds very exciting. So let's dig into what is a roll-up or what could a roll-up be, because there's many different flavors, like the candy-flavored breakfast thing that's also called a (laughs) roll-up. So um, would you be able to explain from your perspective what a roll-up could look like and then what are the variations of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for the audience's standpoint, if they hear someone say roll-up, essentially it's someone that's executing kind of a consolidation play where they're coming to the table saying, hey, 
we have this strategy of making multiple acquisitions. So I think at a very high level, it's just a, a company or a, you know, a, a group of people or a funding source that says, hey, we're going to go make a lot of acquisitions or several acquisitions that all kind of fall within a certain theme. So at a very high level, in my mind, that's kind of what we're talking about here today. As you drill down a little bit and get into some more of the nuance, the term roll-up itself was very hot and popular. And as I mentioned, in the kind of the mid to late 90s, there were lots of uh, companies undergoing roll-up strategies. And actually, if you take more of a historical look, it probably started in the, the 70s, I think, probably most notably with Wayne Hazinga and you know the work that he did with waste management. Local to me here in Cincinnati is a company called Centos, which is a $23 billion company that you've probably never heard of. But they're in the uniform rental space, among others. They've diversified quite a bit, but they went on a quite a bit of an acquisition spree, again, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. But let's kind of move forward again to the late 90s and what a roll-up meant then. So... At that point in time, a roll-up had a connotation that you were putting together more than one business, and the premise behind it was, we're going to be able to strip out a lot of expense because we're bringing them together. So there's going to be redundant expenses that we're going to get rid of and make this thing more profitable. Typically, how those unfolded, and again, this is kind of late 90s, you would have a sponsor who might not be in the business at all who identifies, let's call it for the sake of argument, three businesses that he's going to roll up. So he goes to each one of those businesses, he or she goes to each one of those businesses and negotiates a transaction. What I was seeing a lot from an investment banking standpoint is you would have a combination of multiple acquisitions in conjunction with a public offering, (laughs) which was a little on the complex side and a lot of moving parts to pull off. But basically, you would say, you know, take a group of businesses, have them all agree to be acquired. The acquiring entity at the simultaneous time of going or making those acquisitions would also go public. And, you know, the either part of the proceeds from the public offering would fund a portion of the transaction. But generally, most of the transaction proceeds were in the form of equity in the public entity. So but again, back then, it was all about kind of pulling expenses out. Then all of a sudden, the market kind of soured on the term roll-up and didn't see a whole lot of value being created by simply getting rid of accounting departments or other redundant expense items within the companies. And so it moved to more of what I would consider more of a consolidation. So there was more to the story than simply pulling out expenses. Expenses elimination were definitely still a part of it, but with a consolidation, there was a lot more thought that kind of went around the process. And that's also when you started seeing, and I I think with the increase in private equity at the time, you started seeing less reliance on the public markets to fund these consolidations. And then kind of the third play, which is where I most recently was, and I think what you're seeing in the market today is more of a buy and build strategy. So The premise behind it is still, hey, we're going to make a lot of acquisitions, but it's not so much about pulling expenses out. If you can do that, great, but that's not what the strategy is based on. The strategy is based on taking something and making improvements to it to get it to the next level. So it's buy and it's build. It's not buy and cut out cost. Right. So I, I think that's kind of where the market has evolved to more of this concept of bringing a number of organizations together. If we can get some synergies on the cost side, great, but that's not really what the play here is. The play here is looking for, you know, adding new geographies, putting things on a commonized platform where you can really focus on scale, adding technologies or capabilities that you wouldn't otherwise have. So I think that's where most of the focus is today. For sure. And if you look at most of the large companies that are in almost any industry, a form of a roll up is generally how they grow because at some point growing organically is tough acquiring revenue can potentially the the allure of it at least is adding that revenue to your business or the combined businesses so you mentioned a couple things there that i'd like to strip out and talk about separately so the to my understanding in the companies that we're working with that are doing 
versions of these strategies, there's usually a couple of reasons why they're doing this. One is simply to add revenue. The other is not so much cost reduction, but margin improvement. So in one deal we're working on right now, the margin is actually quite low in the business that we've taken to market. The incoming buyer has some synergies in supply chain and believes they can improve the bottom line of this business, which is cool. But also adding the top line revenue is very attractive. So there's a couple of reasons why you'd want to do this. Others literally just looking at it as a financial play. So putting three or four companies together can move the revenue and and EBITDA to a point where the multiple is much higher. So there's often talk of arbitrage there, multiple arbitrage, so they could buy a company at two to three times earnings and roll it up together and then sell it for six or seven or 10, depending on what they do, if it's purely financial. You're absolutely right. That's, I think, a big driver um, behind... A lot of the buy and build strategies that I've seen is, is there certainly some multiple arbitrage that could be had. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the strategy on this. Now, bear with us if you are a business owner and you're looking to sell. What we're trying to do is give you an insight into how buyers or companies that are going out and doing a roll-up could be thinking and how they could be strategizing. And on the other side, When we talk about developing a strategy, this may be interesting as a thought experiment, or it may be actually useful for you if you are thinking about growing your company and expanding the capabilities through acquisitions. So let's talk. Oh, actually, one more thing. We mentioned sponsors before, so I I just thought I'd briefly talk about a sponsor before we move into the strategy side. So Mark, when you hear sponsor or when you think of sponsor, what does that mean to you? Generally, to me, it means like a source of capital. And we can kind of walk through some varying degrees. Going back to one of my examples in the 90s there, you have a sponsor come in and kind of put up a limited amount of capital just to handle the due diligence and get all the pieces in place prior to the IPO. But they weren't funding the transactions. They were themselves. They were the sponsor that was kind of organizing it all, and that required some capital. If you kind of fast forward to where we are today, whether you're an individual going to do it or you're a private equity fund, because if you think about it, in a lot of cases, this is exactly what private equity funds are doing. They have access to a lot of capital that they have to deploy. And oftentimes it's easier to deploy it by making acquisitions as opposed to solely relying on organic growth. But in my mind, again, you know, at the end of the day, the, the sponsor is the person that's providing the capital. They're not necessarily the ones operating the business, but they're definitely the ones providing the capital. Sure. I think it's worth noting here that, like you mentioned in the first version of this, where maybe they had the capital to cover the closing costs and diligence costs, often the person that you talk to first either won't have all of the capital, so they'll need to go talk to other partners or raise debt to do the deal, even funds that have private equity groups with committed funds that have a timeline still don't want to put 100% of the cash up. So they still need to do the diligence and essentially sell the deal to a financing partner. Even if they're working with that debt provider, they still need to go pitch on a deal by deal basis, right? Correct. Correct. And, you know, as you said that, I kind of got my wheels spinning a little bit. In addition to just sponsor, you'll also hear the term fundless sponsor. You'll also hear the term independent sponsor. And generally, that's not anything to be afraid of. But as a seller of a business, if someone uses a phrase like that, you're absolutely right. That means, hey, I'm the one kind of running the show here, but I'm not the one with the, you know, pulling the purse strings, so to speak. So in most of those cases, they will have to go out and um, find additional capital. They already may have that resource available, but there's still going to be a process that they're going to have to go through to get the uh, capital call approved. Absolutely. So yeah, definitely dig into that a little bit. Don't be blinded by, I'm a private equity group doing a roll-up, <laughs> because essentially anyone can say those terms, and Absolutely. it's whether they can actually close, whether they've done it before. That's a whole other topic that yes, we'll talk is. about another time. <laughs> Awesome. So let's switch gears and talk about developing a strategy for a roll-up and is this right for you or what could a business be looking to do as a strategy if they're looking to acquire you? So what sort of 
What points or what thoughts do you have on developing a strategy around a rollup? Yeah, I, I guess I would start first and foremost with really understanding what your organic growth opportunities are. So those are the opportunities for you to grow your business outside of making an acquisition. Because that, that's an important piece of the puzzle here. Because by doing acquisitions, you're ultimately changing your risk profile because with each acquisition comes additional risk for your business. You're outlaying additional capital. You have integration risk. You have just general business risk with the acquisition. You have cultural risk. You have lots of risk profiles that you don't currently have. So I'd say first and foremost, understand what your organic growth opportunities are and then start looking at, okay, if I were to undertake acquisitions, how could I augment or supplement those organic growth opportunities? Or have I identified an opportunity that I really need to think about more of a buy and build strategy? So if I know that I can grow my business, if I have a new capability, what's it going to cost me to build that capability versus what will it cost for me to go out and acquire that capability? So I think the first step in building the strategy is really understanding why you might want to do acquisitions. And I think That's probably one of the areas where I think a lot of people get in trouble with acquisitions. And, you know, it's really easy to Google and find an article about how, you know, 75 plus percent of acquisitions fail. I think people underestimate (laughs) the power of acquisitions, and I think they underestimate the planning that that needs to go into it. And they just kind of get caught up in the sex appeal of doing deals. So I would you know, once you've gone through understanding the organic growth opportunities, I would start to think about what it means to do the right deals for the right reasons. All right. Just sorry, just before we go into that, I just want to add a quick side note to this organic versus acquisition. So we've actually had a couple of companies in the e-commerce space that have acquired a number of brands and their initial goal was to buy many brands, almost as many as they could find. This was the initial mandate. And a few of them, after a couple of acquisitions, maybe four to eight acquisitions, have paused, done their numbers, and realized that putting money into growing the brands they've already acquired could have a better ROI than going out, vetting all these other deals, doing diligence, and actually acquiring and then assimilating the deals. So even if you started off with acquisitions, it's good to keep that check in place as you go along. You're absolutely right. And, you know, in addition to what you just mentioned, as I hit on a little bit ago, with each acquisition, you take on a whole new risk profile. And so that needs to be reassessed along the way also. So I completely agree with you, Corn. You have to look at, you know, okay, we've made an acquisition. Now let's reassess the organic growth opportunities based on what we have. Let's understand what we need to do to invest in these businesses to continue that organic growth. And let's also take a fresh look at our risk profile because now maybe we have bank debt that we didn't have before. And we need to make sure that we're following certain bank covenants and and aren't uh, getting ourselves in some potential (laughs) default risk down the road. So it's an ongoing process. It's not a, hey, I'm going to design it and then... I'm going to look at it again when I exit in five years. It needs to be a continuous uh, learning process. Absolutely. Okay, so let's say we're a business owner. We've looked at our organic growth opportunities and we're maxed out. We can't invest more capital. So doing acquisitions looks to be a good option for us. What's the next step? Yeah, so as I started to get into, start. I think the next step is building a profile of what the right deal looks like. Because again, I'm a big believer that you have to do the right deals for the right reasons and not just make an acquisition because it seems like it makes sense. Part of doing the right deals for the right reasons is all about discipline. And discipline in the M&A process comes in a lot of forms, right? It, It can be discipline around what you're willing to pay for an acquisition. It can be discipline around the due diligence process. And if you can't get certain levels of due diligence material. Maybe it causes you to have to say, I can't do this deal. To be successful with acquisitions, you have to be incredibly disciplined and you can't be afraid to you know, walk away from deals even after you've started to invest some money into it. So 
really understanding why you would do a, an acquisition and what you want to gain from it and then start building up this disciplined process. I, I think that's kind of the next step. But So not falling in love with a deal. Pardon me? Uh, sorry. So not falling in love with a deal <laughs> is um, part of the process, right? This could be so exactly. great. Let's just buy it regardless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Some, I, I, you know, I, I some, think you some of the, the most... Oh, sorry. We've got a bit of a delay here. Um, some of the right. most, some of the most successful companies that I've seen in the last couple of years doing this are very unemotional when it comes to the deal. If the deal doesn't work for them for whatever their parameters are, they walk away, and it, it's like it never even happened. <laughs> so, how do yeah. you get to that monk level, Zen level financial? acquire a mindset <laughs> do yeah, you have any tips on how to get there yeah that's real hard but it ultimately comes back to what we're talking about right now right it's, it's developing a strategy and you need to stick to the strategy and if things start to deviate from that strategy you have to you know you have to know when to say this isn't going to work so the way that i kind of think about some of the strategy is you know, there's a lot of different strategies where you might want to use a, an acquisition to achieve. But let's just kind of walk through, you know, some of the reasons why you might make an acquisition. As you just talked about, maybe you've tapped out your opportunities for organic growth. So, you know, it could be probably not in what we're talking about because we focus a lot on e-commerce, but there could be a, a case for an acquisition to move into a new geography or a new market or add some additional capabilities or add additional products. There could be a strategy just around getting larger. So, you know, larger businesses tend to attract higher multiples. So there's potentially a multiple arbitrage opportunity. But whatever your reason is, I, I think you need to start with why is it that I'm going to make an acquisition or what do I want to achieve with the acquisition? And then start to, you know, think about the universe of, companies that might fulfill that need, right? So I would start by trying to find opportunities where there are large markets that are pretty fragmented, where you know that, you know, there's more than a handful of opportunities, because if there's just a handful of opportunities, you're either going to be paying a ton or the likelihood of success is just not going to be there. So you want a large universe where you can kind of go out and start talking to people and identifying opportunities. Back to organic, I think once you make an acquisition, you got to have a game plan in place for how you're going to grow that acquisition. It might be the exact same game plan as kind of your platform or your, the business that you're starting off with. But regardless of what it is, you, you need to have a plan on, you know, not day one. You need to have a plan before you close the acquisition on how you're going to grow the business. And then back to what I said before, I think you have to start to develop that discipline process. What exactly are you looking for? You know, what valuation multiples are you willing to pay for the acquisition? In a lot of cases, it, it's kind of like dating, right? When you look for someone to date, you, you probably have your, you know, checklist of these are must-haves and, you know, these are the things I can live with. You know, are they neat? Are they clean? Are they pretty? Are they this or that? That. It's not dissimilar from dating, right? So you put together this checklist of what the ideal candidate looks like, and then you have your secondary checklist of, well, if if it doesn't meet this, that's okay. But you also have to have that list of must-haves. And if the must-haves aren't there, you have to be able to be willing to say this isn't going to work. Absolutely. And one of the things I've seen, I look at it from an unfair advantage is what I refer to it as, where the company looking at the acquisition can do more with the business than the current owner is already yeah. doing. So I don't think, in my novice opinion, it's not really about just adding revenue and profit. It's about what can you really do. That that can ensure that the whole process is a bigger win once you find the right target that you can bring more unfair advantage to this company, integrating it into cross-selling to your current customers or something else, whether it's distribution, supply chain, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the one thing I would add to that, though, is I had a thought that I was going to add to it and it just disappeared. But <laughs> you're, you're right. You need to um, understand you know, the, what the unfair advantage is and how you're going to exploit it. The thought just came back to me. 
But I always advise with an acquisition, what you just described is absolutely true. But I think a lot of people also get themselves in a little bit of trouble thinking they know more about the business than the seller knows about the business. Oh, 100%. And what I mean by that is on day one, you start making all these dramatic changes and that can be bad. So I usually advise someone acquiring a business to not do anything differently for six months to a year so they can learn the business and understand, you know, if I make this change or, you know, turn this knob or pull this lever, I exactly know what the effect is going to be. So you need to really understand the business before you go in and start making those changes. But, But you're absolutely right. It all comes down to game plan and kind of the unfair advantage if you have one. It, definitely right. And I'm glad, so glad you brought that up. Oftentimes, we'll see buyers that overestimate their capabilities and their influence, yes. right, on what could happen next. That's a really key piece because what we're talking about here is businesses. It's not a, I, I refer to real estate quite a lot, it's something else I'm, I'm quite interested in. A building, whether it's commercial or residential, is kind of safe and set as it is. it's There's very few levers there. But a business is a living, breathing thing. So right. when when you're looking from the outside in, you may think, why are they doing this? But like you said, if you just let it breathe, understand why the business is doing what they're doing, you may actually find that it needs to be done a certain way. And also, there might be more opportunities then you realize just by looking at how the business actually operates, but don't mess with the revenue until you understand what's actually generating it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to, to use maybe another example with Amazon businesses, you know, you, you might be looking at a target and you're looking, you know, reviewing their advertising on Amazon and you see that their ACOS is a lot higher than yours. It might be real easy to go, well, heck, we can come in and reduce that A costs and, you know, really cut out a lot of expense without really thinking through, well, maybe they're over investing in advertising to attain a certain rank on a keyword or protect rank on a keyword. And if you come in and start tinkering around with that A cost, if you're not maintaining the same sales level, all of a sudden your rank on that keyword might start dropping and and you find yourself kind of in the reverse of the the flywheel. So lots of reasons to kind of just sit back and understand the business before you make any fundamental changes. Absolutely. Okay. So we've gone through, we've looked at, so far we've looked at organic growth first. We've gone, okay, we're going to go acquire something and we understand the risks. We're going to let the business breathe (laughs) when we acquire. We're not going to jump in and change things straight away. What do we do next? How would we go about finding businesses that fit our criteria once we have the criteria set? Yeah, so, you know, that's the part that this isn't a plug for either you or I, but if you're a business owner and you're interested in proactively undertaking acquisitions, and what I mean by that is you're actually willing to go out and find one as opposed to just being opportunistic and have someone bring a deal to you. That's when you need to think about some areas where you might need help. And the reason I bring that up is it can be a very time-consuming process to develop an acquisition pipeline and maintain it because you know pipelines, like anything else, are active as well, and they kind of ebb and flow, and you need to bring new people into the pipeline as people leave. So that in itself can be entirely exhausting <laughs> And so it's often helpful to either have an internal resource take that or start looking at external resources to help you with buyer identification. But, you know, if you're fortunate enough and you kind of have an easy way to identify a list of targets, I would say start by by just doing that, identifying, okay, if I could go out and make some acquisitions today, let me put together a list of whatever the number is, a list of companies that I know that seem like they might fit my uh, tar- my criteria. From there, I, I would start to kind of maybe rank those acquisition candidates the best you can and prioritize where you're going to spend the most time. But at the end of the day, what I found is the most successful approach to identifying acquisitions is it really comes down to just building relationships. You know, some of the best 
acquisitions that I've made as a buyer in the past have been those that, you know, it was a three-year process where, you know, when I first reached out to the owner, they weren't quite ready for to sell. And we started to develop a relationship over time. And that helped me better understand him and what was important to him as an owner. And it helped him better understand who we were as buyers and why he might want to work with us. So we were able to develop a certain level of trust over time before, you know, any checks were written or any dollars were spent on attorneys um, developing agreements and whatnot. That whole process, you know, of building that relationship, that was kind of key to the successes that we had from an acquisition standpoint. But, you know, I think you have to be willing to invest time and commitment, not just into building relationships, but just letting the process work how the process is going to work, because there are only certain things you can control. And really the only thing that you can control in this process is reaching out to prospective targets. Aside from that, it's up to them whether or not they're ready to sell or ready to talk, right? So absolutely, it, it, it could you might get lucky with highly fragmented areas and find some I, I guess I, I think about it as fishing, right? You might get lucky and put your line in the water and grab a fish right away. And you might have to sit in the boat for six hours before you get a nibble. It's, you, you just never know. And I guess a couple of things to add to this part. So deal flow is kind of tricky. It takes time to build up. And deal flow simply means yes. the amount of, it's like a sales funnel. So the amount of targets in the top of the funnel and then working their way through to do you know them, like them, trust them, and are they open to selling if you're on the acquisition side, and then do the criteria match. So oftentimes, if we have someone who wants to sell today, what we usually find next is there's something wrong with the deal and or they haven't got their financials in order, which is the absolute baseline <laughs> of criteria. Once you get down to it into diligence, the numbers actually really matter <laughs> and can be a, a red light or a green light on the whole deal. Absolutely. So getting, like you were saying, it takes time to build up trust and build up the relationship, but also it can take extra amount of time for the company themselves to get their financials in order. If they're a larger company, chances are their financials could be two to three months or longer in arrears. So to get the updated financials may be a little bit tough to do. Yeah, that, that's a great point. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought up the you know kind of sales pipeline analogy because the other piece to this is it's also one of those situations where you want to think about how can I work smarter, not harder. And so, you know, think about things like how can I utilize the CRM, right? Because managing, you know, contacts and when am I supposed to follow up with this guy or when was the last time I talked to her, all that stuff becomes incredibly important and being able to reference, okay, here's the last email that I sent or here's the last conversation that I had before the next follow up with that person. It makes the process a lot easier. So if you haven't ever gone through this kind of process before, I would one highly encourage using a CRM. And second, I would also say, you know, it's also just not about sending out emails and picking up the phone. A lot of business and, you know, pipeline development happens in real time with face-to-face -face meetings. So I would think about who's in your network who might have access to people that could have an interest in selling. And I would also think about conferences and trade shows where you might go and just talk to people and let them hear your story. And it's amazing how when you talk to people and tell them what you're up to, how many people go, oh, I know so-and-so that you should talk to. You know, another way of saying this is, when building that pipeline, you have to look at all available methods. And I would employ a strategy that touches on all of those, right? It's sometimes picking up the phone, sometimes emailing, leveraging the network that you already have or in the process of developing, and then also attending conferences and trade shows or events where you can network face-to-face -face with people. Events are an absolute goldmine. And one thing I like to do at events, I'm not sure if you do this as well, is typically if I'm speaking, this is much easier. I talk to the other speakers that are also speaking at the event and build a relationship with them and lead with how can I help you? Uh, and then also at a 
also at a trade show or a conference, you can also do the same thing with sponsors. So even if you're not speaking, you can go talk to the sponsors. The reason for talking to sponsors, if it's not obvious, is they are actively paying to acquire customers in that space. So if you know the vertical that you want to make acquisitions in or deploy your roll-up strategy and you go to a trade show that's full of those type of businesses, going to service providers and sponsors that are selling actively selling into that space, they'll probably know way more people than you would and befriend them, right? No one really wants to talk to the guy selling in the booth unless they're looking for what he's selling. So buy the guy a beer, you know, like, hey, how's how's sales today? What are you looking for? Maybe you could refer them some business. So start with that leading hand of helping. And also look at people that are already in the space. Even if it's just for information about trends in the space, they'll know a lot about that market. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you hit on something that I think a lot of people, until you get into it, you, you might not really think about. But, you know, you, you said going up to someone and saying, what can I do for you? It's amazing how powerful something that simple is. And quite honestly, when I do use that approach most people don't really say, oh, well, here are five things you can go do for me, right? But it's the presence that you bring when you start off with not what can you do for me, but what can I do for you that starts to open the door for that relationship building. And I can tell you from efforts that I've gone under to identify and reach out to prospective targets, what is not successful usually is when you send them an email and say, hey, we're interested in you or you for sale. (laughs) That doesn't work, right? And what's even worse (laughs) about it not working is nine times out of 10, they're not going to reply to you and say, no, we're not for sale. So all you did is (laughs) wasted your time and you're not any smarter than you were before you sent that email. So I would always take the approach of, hey, I just want to introduce myself. You know, we're in similar lines of business or here's what I do and here's what you do. And, you know, there could be some interesting things for us to talk about. I'd love to talk shop with you sometime. I don't even bring up the concept of I might want to acquire you on that first outreach because, again, it's about getting some engagement. And once you have that engagement, then it might make sense to prod a little bit into, hey, you know, what's your future strategy or, you know, what the next two to three years look like for you? And you can start getting some pretty important information that might help you, one, better assess whether or not they're a fit, but also better assess the likelihood of, of furthering the conversation into one of an acquisition. Absolutely. And that's a perfect point there. If you're talking to someone as a peer or just as a a friendly ear to talk to, they're likely going to open up to you a little bit more than if they're on the back foot thinking, oh, they're they're trying to acquire me. I have to make this sound better if they're open to it. So you can find out a lot more about the business in a relaxed setting as opposed to going straight for the kill. (laughs) So, okay. So we've built up some deal flow where we're going to conferences, we're looking at at this as a long-term prospect. Of course, we've got some advisors in in play. Um, I've I got no problem pitching that. Definitely get some help. <laughs> uh, we can help you with that if you need help with it. Um, but find good advisors that know the space as well and know the, the players in the market. So what do you do next? Once you start to go um, into acquisition mode, what would you need to do on that piece, Mark? Before I get to that, can I add one last thing to the uh, kind of building the deal flow? Of course. So what we've just talked about is building proprietary deal flow. And that's very different than, like I said, being opportunistic. I think you have to do both to be successful. So if you're looking to acquire a business, I would get to know as many people like myself and Corin as you can or other you know, investment bankers, whatever. Because you do want them to provide deal flow for you as well, but you absolutely want to supplement that or have the main deal flow come from your own efforts. And, you know, it's so much easier to close a transaction where you're, you can put the transaction on your time frame, right? And let it build as it, it needs to build as opposed to, you know, coroner or I reaching out to you and say, hey, here's a deal. You got two weeks to get back to me. 
right? So I, I'm a fan if you're making acquisitions on your behalf of having proprietary deal flow, but you should also have, you know, kind of that non-proprietary deal flow that, that's brought to you from your network. But I, I just wanted to make that point that, you know, you can do a roll-up strategy probably without having to go out and actually look. You'll have more success if you take a, an effort that is focused on developing proprietary deal flow to you. So, yeah, that's a great point. So what I would do next is, you know, kind of gets back into that discipline. You need to start thinking about structure of the deal. You know, what makes sense for you as a buyer? How are you going to fund the transaction? How are you going to value the target? Start developing a, a due diligence process. What are the key things, you know, back to that list of, you know, things you want to think about from a dating perspective, what are all those must-haves that you need to see and what are the things that you would like to see, but maybe they're negotiable or you just really need to understand all the different aspects of the business that you're going to want to look into. The caution that I would give there is there's always a challenge when going into the due diligence process of getting way into the weeds. So I would always advise like having a, I don't know if it's a slide or a, you know, just a handwritten some notes of why I started talking to this company to begin with and keep the high level strategic points in mind as you start the due diligence process. Cause it's really easy to get hung up on, you know, well, we want them to do accrual accounting and they're doing cash and therefore we're not going to do the deal. You know, obviously you would never do that, but you need to think about what's really important and not get lost in the detail. Or if you do get lost in the detail, have a way to come back up to the surface so you can keep a focus on what's really important with the transaction. I think that's a great idea. Developing a diligence checklist, not just when you're signed and in due diligence, but you can actually explain this to the company you're talking to, you can explain this to any advisors involved in the transaction from the sell side. So they understand what you need to see to get comfortable with the deal, even pre LOI letter of intent, right? So you're, yeah. the more transparent you are with that, the more confidence we'll have as advisors, if we're working on the sell side, that you know what you're doing next. And the easiest way I see your note here to assemble a team. So who would you suggest to put on that team to help you develop this if you've never done acquisitions before? That's a great question. So I, I'm definitely a fan of having a team, but I'm also cognizant of you could, you know, do you need the uh, dream team like OJ had from a legal standpoint and a bunch of high priced people that, you know, you end up racking up a ton of fees on and then find out that you can't continue with the deal. You know, that's probably not the ideal situation. It's, you know, but you need certain help along the way, right? So I guess I would mm. start with what resources do I have within my organization? If, if I already have a company and I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a CFO, then I can leverage my CFO for a lot of the financial due diligence, for instance. If I don't, if I'm maybe just an independent sponsor looking to make my first acquisition, then I might need the resources of an accountant. I'll definitely need some resources from an attorney. So those are two pieces, right? I don't want to leave out probably the most important piece, but someone like myself or, or you, Corin, who can help you think about deal structure, how to get the deal, you know, staying on track, some project management, where to focus your attention. You know, M&A advisors can definitely help on the uh, due diligence standpoint and organizing the due diligence and making sure that you're hitting on all the key areas that you want to hit on. I'd say those are probably at a high level, the three probably most important pieces of the team. You might find there are specific areas, depending on what kind of acquisition you're making, where you might need to bring in some more kind of subject matter experts, maybe you know, if it's an advertising driven business, you might need expert that really understands advertising and where they're placing their ads and what the messaging is, or you might need someone to really dive into their social presence, you know, how active are they on social media? What's the overall sentiment of the business or how people feel about the brand, whatever it might be. 
So there are certainly areas might need to bring in some uh, specialized help. Absolutely. Okay, so... That's cool. So you build the team and that is a good question is where are you actually starting from? If you have a team, you can lean on that team, especially if you're looking to do acquisitions that are relevant to your industry and you have some synergies in-house, but you can sometimes get hung up on the synergies and not really look at everything else. So it's good to have some advisors you can reach out to. Um, I've heard some people on the acquisition side using an incentivized team where they have a piece of the deal or are compensated if the deal closes. Do you have any insight into which type of advisors should just strictly be paid advisors and which advisors you might want to bring into the deal to add value? Yeah. And you got my mind going a bunch of different ways here. So on one hand, you know, if you think about it, so My business is one that's predominantly based on success fees, right? And so I see that as I'm adding value and, you know, I'll be compensated when a a transaction closes. You know, I've had similar structures when I was internal to businesses as well. So I was the one making, you know, leading the acquisition effort and I, I would have a bonus that would be tied to the closing of the deal. You know, I think... There's probably, you know, this might be uh, out of line a little bit, but there's probably an opportunity for the industry as a whole to, to rethink that model a little bit. When I say that, I think more along the lines of, you know, if I'm internal to a business and I'm going to get some sort of compensation if I close a deal, you know, are your interests really aligned with the companies? And, you know... I could foresee situations, particularly with internal employees of, yeah, you know, we found this in due diligence, but it's not that big of a deal and we can fix that once we close, but I really want my bonus kind of thing. Absolutely. (laughs) So I would say with any advisor that you use, I would look at what their role is and how you can align their incentive with your incentive and make sure that you guys are kind of focused on the same thing. So with attorneys, I want an attorney to tell me what my risks are and making sure that I'm not going to step on a landmine. So I don't want him to be or her to be compensated only if I close a transaction. I want my attorney, you know, my attorney is going to get paid no matter what, which is what their model is. But that makes sense, right? Because again, I don't want the attorney to be afraid to come to me and say, hey, you shouldn't do this deal. So I think with attorneys, it's fine. I think with accountants, you know, it's kind of the same thing. What value are you adding? It would be great if accountants could kind of have a little bit of a success fee model also. I don't know that you could find any, but yeah, I would say, you know, just really thinking through and making sure everyone has aligned interests is is the best way to go there. That's a great perspective. The aligned interest piece, you don't want someone on your team just pushing to get a deal done so they get paid the most possible. It's easy to think, someone once told me that everyone, every business owner, every person is much less attached to future money than present money. So sometimes being cheap on the front end can actually hurt you later down the track. So definitely make sure everyone's aligned and like you said, you want someone on your team coming to you saying, we have to absolutely stop this deal and here's why. You don't want people to be incentivized not to do that because ultimately if you're the business owner or if you're a major shareholder, this is going to be your problem after the acquisition. That's right. Cool. So is there any... Is there any other points on the acquisition side? I mean, we could do 10 episodes on just acquisitions, but this is more of an overview episode. So before we get into operations and integrating, is there anything else on the acquisition side you'd like to mention? You know, the one thing we didn't really necessarily talk through is before you get too far down the process of talking to people, I would have a pretty good handle on how you were going to finance an acquisition. As you know, Corin is an advisor. There's nothing worse than feeling like you're moving towards a deal and then having the buyer come to you and say, hey, I, I can't get the funding. And then you just kind of think, wow, I just wasted three months. Thanks. Yep. Nothing worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, making sure that you have either investors or cash on hand or access to bank capital 
or some alternative lending source. I think walking through that process before you have a deal on the table is helpful. And it's going to be one of those chicken or an egg scenarios where I would say develop as many relationships as you can before you have a deal on the table. And that includes talking to your local bank or a banker you might know. They're not going to be able to tell you anything until they see an actual deal and analyze financials and most likely the same scenario with an equity investor. But it's just like developing the relationship with the target, you know, developing relationships with financing sources. You got to do that in advance. And that way, when you do have a table, a deal to bring them, you've already gone through all the who are you and why are you doing this? They've gotten to know you. So that part of the process is already done and you can kind of streamline it and say, okay, when we last met, you said if I found a deal that fit these parameters, you'd have an interest in it. So here it is. What do you think? So Again, I would always make sure that, you know, you have an ability to actually execute the acquisition strategy. And that can help you in a competitive scenario if you are looking at a deal that's on yes. the market and you're coming in with a bid. It's not just coming in with a strong bid and good deal terms. It's what are the chances that you can close this thing? So if you've already talked to a bank and they've essentially pre-approved you or said, yes, with these parameters, we'll lend up to X or based on the deal, here's what we need to see. And then the advisor, the sell side representative can even reach out to the bank and have that conversation and get more clarity on your offer versus other offers. And even if the deal is off the market, as a way to give people more of the target company more confidence that you can close, sharing this information early will help show them that you're serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue, and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.